This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, welcome to the New Books and Genocide Studies part of the New Books Network. My name's uh, Christopher Davey. I'm the Charles E. Scheidt Visiting Assistant Professor at the Strasser Center for Holocaust and Genocide Studies at Clark University. And I'm here today uh, to talk with Anna Headland uh, about her recent book, Hutu Rebels, uh, Exile Warriors in the Eastern Congo. Uh, Anna works in the Faculty of Sociology at Lund University. Uh, so, Anna, go ahead, uh, please, if you could tell us a little bit about yourself before we start talking about the book. Yeah, sure. Um, thank you. Um, yeah, so um, I have a PhD in so- social anthropology, and I'm currently working as a researcher at the Department of Sociology and Social Anthropology at Lund University in Sweden. Um, and I have studied conflict and violence for the past decade. And I guess this journey began when I was part of a research group that was investigating um, actually rape and sexual violence in the Pacific region. And I then became interested in, interested in trying to understand how perpetrators themselves um, justify acts of violence and the everyday life and local politics of conflict. Um, so that led me to conduct fieldwork in the eastern Congo for my PhD. Um, And so far, my research focus has mainly been on understanding the inner dynamics of armed groups, uh, the motives and root causes of violence in war, and victim-perpetrator dichotomies. Um, And after my PhD, I did a postdoc at the Center for Social Change in Johannesburg in South Africa. And I then applied for a Marie Curie Research Fellowship together with Dignity, the Danish Institute Against Torture in Denmark, where I was based for two years. And during this time, I also carried out fieldwork in the Kiva regions in the Congo, um, but with a slightly different focus. Um, Yeah, so after those projects, I moved back to Sweden again and... I am currently working on a new research project on gun violence and crime prevention in Sweden. And um, the book um, that we will talk about today is based on the fieldwork and the research that I did in the Congo. Yeah. Great. Thanks very much. Um, you know, and it, it's, it's great to be able to, you know, we're going to hear a little bit about your current research because I want to <laughs> throw that in at the end. Um, but if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about who the 
FDLR, FDLR are and what some of the main points of the book are, if you could. Yeah, so the FDLR is an acronym that stands for the Democratic Forces for the Liberation of Rwanda. And this is a group that was formed after the genocide in Rwanda in 94, when um, thousands of people, both victims and perpetrators, um, fled to genocide in Rwanda and they crossed the border to the eastern Congo. Um, so originally the FDLR was composed by people who had participated in the genocide in Rwanda as uh, military officials and army soldiers, um, but also um, they are composed by Rwandan refugees. Um, and today the group is uh, much more diverse and fragmented, and it's uh, composed by Rwandan and Congolese refugees. Um, and some of them um, have uh, nothing to do with the genocide that happened in 1994. Um, so the purpose um, of writing this book was to tell a story about this group of Rwandan Houthi rebels um, who live in a rebel camp in the very remote area in the highlands of the Congo. Um, so in the book, I explore how this community um, of about 300 people, both rebels and refugees, um, speak about the war and their understandings uh, of violence and their everyday lives being an active rebel group in a very complex and complicated situation. Um, so based on ethnographic fieldwork, um, participant observations and interviews with uh, rebel leaders and fighters um, that are currently involved in the conflict, the book um, provides an analysis of everyday life in a rebel camp and an understanding of violence in the Kiva region um, from the perspective of the perpetrators and their families. Um, so in the book, I try to explore how this group um, justify violence. So this is how they justify violence in the Congo, but also in Rwanda. Um, and I'm also looking at how they tried to rewrite the official narrative of the Rwandan genocide and investigate how violence is produced in the camp setting and how violence is um, transferred from one generation to another, for example, in uh, propaganda, in songs, uh, military performances, um, narratives and prayers and so on. Um, in the book, I also discuss and unpack um, the complex categories of victims and perpetrators, um, and I show how the rebels themselves um, believe that they are victims and how such understandings lead to the justification of violence. Um, so, for example, in their perception, they are trying to uh, protect themselves from Rwanda, the Congolese military, um, and other armed groups in the region. Um, so I showed that although this is true, it's also a way to legitimize violence. Um, yeah, the book, um, it also explores um, various dimensions of violence. 
I show, for example, how the camp was a setting where violence uh, was actually not taking place, but that everyday life in the rebel camp was explained um, as being extremely difficult. Um, so they live in small houses made of bamboo. Uh, they have no water, electricity, um, and so on. And everyday life is much about um, securing access to food, about routines, um, going to the church and simply waiting. Um, so they have been living in these camps for over 25 years. Um, but of course, violence is still present in the sense that they speak about violence. They have a very long and complicated history of violence. Um, they are armed, they train, they do military trainings and so on. Um, and they also um, carry out um, attacks against civilians and so on. Um, yeah, so I I think that's the, the purpose of the book. And, and probably I should also say that in the uh, region, this group is, is often referred to as the genocidas because of their um, so-called genocide ideology. Um, so when this group was formed um, for more than 25 years ago, the goal was to return to Rwanda and to retake power in Kigali. Uh, but today they would claim that they have little to do with the genocide um, and they are still in conflict with the Rwandan states um, as, well as, as well as with the Congolese states. Um, and yeah, like I said, in the Kivu regions, they have a very long and difficult history. Um, they've been divided in different fractions. They have different political and military goals and so on. Um, yeah. Thanks. Yeah, that's really helpful. And one of the things that struck me as I, you know, uh, read the book um, is that contrast, right? You start one of the chapters with that scene from um, Johnny Mad Dog, right? The film mm. that depicts popular ideas about child soldiers and about um, rebel groups. And you very quickly demystify that in the context of the FDLR, mm. um, which I think was really helpful, right? To really get into that, that level mm. of the day. Um, so you mentioned earlier, you know, you're the background of your research, um, in your involvement in that research group that looked at sexual violence and the justification of violence. So given that background, how was it that you came to focusing specifically on the FDLR? Mm, yes, yeah, so when I first um, began to explore and to do research on perpetrators and violence in the Congo, I actually first began to do interviews in demobilization camps and I was interviewing uh, combatants, uh, soldiers, former child soldiers um, from uh, many different um, armed groups. Um, and through um, these contacts and, and people that I met in the field, I was then able to access a rebel camp. And so initially I thought um, that this project was not going to be about one single group, uh, but also after spending um, time and conducting fieldwork in the rebel camp, I decided um, to focus um, on one group um, in order to better, I guess, capture the understanding of violence and to achieve this more holistic understanding of all groups and violence. Um, yeah. 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 Thank you. And. You know, and this is one of the things that I found quite interesting about the book is that it, it does give us that quite in-depth approach, whereas 
the FDLR typically is one of those groups that kind of pops up because it's because of that deep connection to Rwanda and mm. their involvement in Congo. We have very little in terms, I mean, outside of your book, we have very little in terms of that sort of deeper holistic understanding of, of who they are and, and you know, how they see themselves important as well. Yeah, true. And I think that most of the studies that exist are written by human rights organizations. So mm. I think that it's also been uh, quite little research on the FDLR. Mm, definitely. Yeah. So the one thing, you know, for readers of the book, um, one of the most fascinating things about you know, what you've done here is kind of the, the, the process, right, that you undertook. So I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about um, your research design and some of the fieldwork challenges that you had, how, how did that all come together for you? Um, yeah, so I'll start with the, the fieldwork experiences, I think. So I think that doing fieldwork in a conflict setting is, um, is challenging for obvious reasons. Um, there is no reliable information. Um, there are many rumors. Uh, perpetrators have this tendency to speak about themselves in a certain way, um, highlighting only certain issues while ignoring or avoiding others and so on. Um, and the conflict in the Congo um, is also highly political and complicated. And there are also many um, victims of violence and many people have suffered from violence for many um, generations. Um, so it's also quite an emotional setting where many people have traumatic memories. Um, they are suspicious to outsiders, for example, and there is a general lack of trust, I think, especially towards the international community. Um, so it's difficult. Uh, it's definitely a difficult context to work in. Um, I think that doing research on perpetrators um, also poses unique methodological and ethical questions. Um, it's, for example, it can be difficult to get access. Um, it's also sensitive to write about um, perpetrators. Um, and perpetrators may also themselves be traumatized and so on. Um, I think it's also quite difficult when it comes to representations and to how to minimize risks and so on. Um, as an anthropologist, I was interested in how people themselves speak about the life situations and how they explain violence, uh, and also how they, you know, how they present themselves. Um, and of course, to them, um, I was a foreign researcher that they invited to the camp. And this also meant that it was um, a lot of propaganda. Um, at least in the beginning, they presented only one side of the story and a very um, strong victim narrative. And it was also quite difficult to um, access people who lived in the camp that were not uh, soldiers, so for example, the women and elders, uh, since I think also that the leaders um, tried to maintain control over interactions and so on. Uh, but I think this, this was also an interesting finding in itself. Um, 
Yeah, so the camp, um, it was also a very hierarchical setting and where the leaders, for example, kept this control over different interactions. And uh, I was also somehow dependent on, on their knowledge of the situation. So um, I think, so in, in anthropology, we, um, we usually say that trust and access is the goal for gathering this good data. But I think it was extremely difficult to gain trust in the rebel camp. Um, and I think this is true in any war zone or any conflict area. Um, but this is not to say that I wasn't um, welcomed in the camp. In fact, um, the rebels and the combatants were very friendly, polite, and they treated me with respect. And I think this was also mutual. And I really um, had a keen interest to listen to the stories, to learn more about the life. Um, and really try to understand why they continue to fight this seemingly endless war. Um, yeah, I think it's also quite on a like on a more personal level. It can also be quite difficult not to be engaged by people's life situations. Um, and some of the people in the camp, for example, are. Um, definitely victims and or refugees, and they have nothing to do with the surrounding war. Um, so I think it's it's it it there were many challenges, um, but I do think also that these methodological and ethical questions uh, need more attention in perpetrator research, and um, and that they are always part of. The difficulties of doing research in in conflict areas. Um, yeah, I know. <laughs> no, that's yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you. And I, you know, there has been, and as as we both know, right, there's been some work to try and address that that gap recently. Mm. Um, but it seems like one of the things again that you you bring in the book here is, the, you know, definitely the anthropological lens. But there's we get. At least I got as I read it, right, a feeling of a bit more of an interdisciplinary approach, trying to can keep in mind like all these other different ways of dealing with perpetrators. Mm. Um, you know, in addition to you know a lot of the material out there already that can tend to be quite um, legally influenced or like shaped around building cases against perpetrators and establishing guilt and and so mm, on. Exactly. Um, so just I had a the next question I was going to ask you was around there the group's interaction with the surroundings. But I want to just pick up on something you said earlier, and you kind of addressed this a little, little bit. I was wondering if you might be able to say a bit more. Um, and it's something that I've encountered as well, that you know, when you go into situations where you have a highly organized group, where there's hierarchy, um, you do tend to have uh, quite a lot of um, sort of perpetrators speak, if you will, like... Mm as you mentioned and and that then becomes you know you can see it as being highly subjective and highly selective in the way that things are presented to you are there ways in which you know you as a, a researcher kind of dealt with this um you know did it lead to sort of additional questioning and challenging or was it more about sort of observing and sort of um kind of taking note of how those views were being presented um, yes, yeah, so in the in the 
in the camp, what I tried to do was to uh, mostly um, observe and to do, um, of course, interviews and to get this, uh, you know, to get this like um, understanding of what is going on in the camp. And by doing that, I think I also could avoid a little bit these more. Um, more um yeah like the so for example they did these uh, military performances where it was obvious that they were trying to to present to me one certain uh, narrative uh but by being there for quite some time and getting to know people and having more informal conversations i could also um deconstruct that image uh, if that makes sense no, yeah, it, it definitely does make sense. Um, and yeah, one of the, you know, the quite intriguing elements of the book is the the one scene of the the reenactment, or I guess it's a sort of a, a future hoped enactment of the International Criminal Court where you have Kagami and the international community, you know, represented with, you know, some major or people sort of standing in for major countries. And that, you know, again, right, is a fascinating piece of kind of performance yeah. work. Uh, and demonstration of that that narrative. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the the next question I had for you was um, just about sort of this kind of multi-directional relationship that the FDLR had with their surroundings. So how was it that the group shaped their surroundings in sort of these, this remote location in Eastern Congo? Yeah. So that's that's a very that's a very good question. Um, but so so this group. Um, they have been in the region for a very long time. Um, they have this, you know, this very long and complicated history with the Rwandan government, with the Congolese government, and with many different uh, local armed groups in the region. So this also means that they have enemies and they have friends, um, but they also shift alliances and they form new networks. And this is depending on the surrounding situation. So it's quite difficult to, to follow, um, I think, how they actually shift and form these um, alliances. Um, but also in some areas in the Kivu region, they live together with the Congolese population, whereas in other areas, they are enemies with the local population. Um, I would say that they are also dependent on these alliances with the surrounding communities. Um, so, for example, they can provide security to villages in exchange for food and so on. Um, and so in one way, they are dependent on the local population, um, but they also exercise power over villages. Um, so it's depending on many factors, I would say, such as yep, local political, economic, survival, security, and so on. Um, but I do think that has been the, the, the hardest uh, research uh, question to, to figure out actually how they are actually shaping their surroundings because they tend to shift these alliances all the time and very often. Mm, yeah, thank you. So just to kind of keep things a little bit more general before I dive into some very specific questions. Yeah. Um, what was the most surprising thing that you found as you were out there, you know, given the things that you knew already, having sort of worked in the area before and having worked in sort of thematically in this area, mm. what was the thing that surprised you the most as you got into the camp? 
Well, first of all, I think it was the isolation of the camps and the remoteness of the camp. And it was um, surprising to find that history and this identity of being Hutu, um, of being a rebel, of being an exile, um, was so present in their everyday life in this very isolated setting. Um, but also that the genocide has not been forgotten among the people in the camp, although it happened more than, yeah, what is it now, 27 years ago, 28 maybe. Um, and even though some individuals, like the children, for example, have never been to Rwanda, they still speak about the country as their promised land, um, and they have not given up the dream to return to Rwanda, um, even though they've never been there. Um, and I think that also the isolation of this camp has formed um, a very strong community among the people who share these very strong feelings of exclusion um, that, and, and those feelings of exclusion are also part of shaping ideologies and, and, yeah, and aspiration. Um, but it was also clear that the, the leadership in the camp um, exercised control over the people. Uh, and I was also a little bit surprised to find that they are tired of fighting this war, but they still can't give up. And this is be partly because of the politics in the region. Um, and yeah, they have nowhere to go. So they believe that they can't return to Rwanda and they cannot stay and integrate in the Congo. Um, so in one way, they're also stuck in the forests. Um, at least uh, that's what they think. Mm. Mm. I was going to ask you, I'll ask you a little bit later about the role of survival. And then again, right, this is all part of that demystifying of, of the rebel group, whether mm. it be in the Eastern Congo or elsewhere, that you know, life is full of more of these routines and much more mundane than we perhaps might think it is. Mm. Um, before we move on to that, I wondered if you might be able to say um, anything about uh, any reaction that the FTLR or the wider Rwandan Hutu diaspora or even the Rwandan state has had to the work that you've done? If you had any response? Mm, I think, yeah, I think the short answer to that question is, is no, not that much. Uh, but there has been an interest from, let's say, the international community who's working in the region, so from NGOs and, and so on. Uh, but not so much from uh, the diaspora. Yeah. Um, that's, that's really helpful. Thank you. And, I, and again, right, it's, you, you, we kind of observe all those things. And I think that I, my, I guess my just opinion is that, you know, the, the lack of uh, response is perhaps because of the, the nuanced view that you present in the book, mm. that it doesn't, you know, it doesn't kind of fit into either groups. You know, if we look at sort of the broader debates and around Rwanda and, and memory, it, the, the narratives, that the narrative that you present in the book doesn't fit into sort of either camp, if you will, and it's hard to sort of define it as, you know, those, those that are either for or against Kagami. Mm. But I think the book, you know, presents some of that nuance that's really kind of missing from mm. some of that debate. Um, so 
one of the other things um, in terms of like a little bit more depth here um, that you really address in the book was the role of religious belief uh, and religious institutions. I wonder if you could say a little bit about the role that these things played in camp life. Um, yes, so religion, um, I would say, played a major role in the camp. Um, they had, for example, two um, churches in the camp, one Catholic church and the Protestant church. And also, I found that the leaders of the camp were also the spiritual leaders. So they were also the priests and the pastors. Um and many um, prayers were about the promised land, Rwanda, and their hopes to go back one day. Um, and w- when I observed church ceremonies and uh, church activities, um, you could also see that in many prayers and in many songs, and um, they were also about um, yeah, crying out their pains um, and they talked all the time about the difficult life that they live in the forest. Um, they prayed about being ignored by the international community and the rest of the world. Um, so I think that the church um, was also a place where they sort of dealt with uh, traumas and pains and so on. Uh, but at the same time, many prayers also included propaganda-like messages and and so yeah like I said before even the children who had never been to Rwanda um, could pray about how they were being misinterpreted and they complained about yeah the horrible life that they were living in the forest Um, and everyone went to church every day um, and much of everyday life was organized or formed around different church activities so it definitely played a major role. Thank you. And it, it definitely seems then that it played sort of this multi-purposed um, role mm. for, you know, for everybody in the camp, that it was, it seems like it was an outlet, but then an outlet for sort of, you know, personal feeling and, you know, their, you know, sort of grievance with their position that they're in, exactly. but then also reinforce those power structures within yeah. the camp as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the, I think this, for me, that was, you know, in terms of it being an anthropological study, some of the, you know, the really rich observations came as, you know, you were there observing, uh, you know, religious life and, mm. and worship. And some of that, the, the detail of, again, right, the sort of multi-purpose role of religion really sort of came out in those observations. I thought it was a really, um, really great part of the book. Thank you. Um so the next question I have for you was around sort of the experience of um, Congolese recruits. Uh, you know, you mentioned that the FDLR that we have now is not a carbon copy or not the same as those who those Rwandan perpetrators who fled from Rwanda in um, in the middle of 1994. Mm. And I wondered if you got a sense for kind of like the difference of experience between, you know young Congolese who've been become part of the FDLR versus maybe older, um, you know, definitely Rwandan, um, you know, commanders or leaders that have been part of it for longer. Mm. Mm. I think this is also quite a difficult question to, to, to research. And I've heard uh, many different stories. Um, I do believe that 
many leaders and combatants are in fact no longer from the 94 generation. Um, and like you said, that many combatants are born in the camps in the Congo. Um, but also that um, the elders are are refugees from Rwanda, but I don't believe that they necessarily had anything to do with the genocide as perpetrators, but that they did arrive in the Kivus as refugees. Um, so this is uh, this is um, still a little bit of a of a mystery, I think. Like, how many are they? Um, how powerful are they? What is the resources and so on? And in the book. Um, I only write about this small community of rebels and refugees um, and this also means that I'm not quite sure how other camps are structured and there is very little information about that too um, and it's quite difficult to find out um, also because they are you know they are blended with Congolese communities and other armed groups and so on um, so yeah, I've heard different stories, but I do think that the the majority is is, is not from the ninety four generation. I would say. Mm, thank you. So for me, one of the the biggest takeaways from the book was about again going back to this kind of deromanticizing and and thinking about and observing the everyday aspects mm. of the camp. And so, what would you say the role of survival was in the camp? And sort of you know observations you made about sort of the wider everyday life for the FBLR or members of the FBLR? Yes, I, for the, the majority of the members of the FDLR, um, and from what I could observe in the camp, are living quite a difficult life where they have uh, little access to food, other, little access to other resources and so on. Um, but I've also heard about those rebel leaders, for example, that are... That are um, that are quite well off so um it definitely depends on uh where what role in the group you have um and but most of the the refugees or the women and the children would uh, say that they find it quite difficult to survive you know they complain about being hungry that they don't have any medicine and so on um i think this is also quite a political um Thing for the FDLR because many of those I interviewed um, often said that they want to be recognized as refugees um, because that being granted that uh, refugee label would also give them access to, to resources and supply, for example, from the UNHCR. Um, so many said that they wanted to be, you know, to have this refugee status because that would give access to food, tents, medicine, and so on. Um, so this is a political category, um, I think, especially when it comes to the FDLR. And because the UNHCR um, cannot offer any support to groups that are active in the conflict. So um, the, the majority of those I spoke to said that they wanted to have this refugee status instead so that they could get access to um, to, to other supplies. Mm. And I suppose a lot of that, like you said, is kind of caught up in a lot of the politics. Exactly. Um, and the, you know, this sort of longstanding place that the FDLR has and this constellation of, of other rebel groups in the East that you know, make peace and security very elusive. Yeah, exactly. So thinking about this element of survival um, and just 
maybe casting sort of a, a broader, a bit of a broader net here about, you know, why this kind of classic question about why people fight or say they're fighting. Um, and it seemed like, you know, what you were describing in the book was, you know, this, this group that says that they're fighting to return to Rwanda, but actually, as I read, it seemed like they were more fighting just to survive, mm. but weren't willing to describe it as such because, you know, maybe the ideology or power structure didn't allow them to describe it as in that way. Yeah, yeah, true. And I think this also has to do with that. That um, so, for example, the, the the leaders can't return to Rwanda. And they can't stay in Congo because of the, the crimes they have committed in, in the in the region. So I think that's also is becoming one of the reasons why they have to stay in the forest and why they have to keep on going. Um, but but you're definitely right that the majority say that they are um, tired of this uh, this 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 fighting and this war. Mm, yeah, and we got the sense of that through. I think one or two of the participants or informants that you spoke to that had been able to extract themselves somehow from the camp and as they sort of reflect back on their time and mm. you know, had some communication with them that they yeah, kind of demonstrated that, I don't know, that, that difficult spot that they're in. Yeah. Um, very good. Well, thanks very much. I uh, don't want to take too much more of your time, but I wonder if you might be able to Tell us a little bit more about what you're working on at the moment uh, whilst you're there in Sweden. Um, yeah, so at the moment I am uh, working on a research project on gun violence and crime prevention in Sweden. Um, so it's a little bit different from, from, from working in the Congo, but I'm still working on questions around violence and so on. And um, gun violence is actually one of the most debated topics here at the moment because there's been an increase of um, yeah, young men shooting other young men. And so I'm trying to figure out uh, why we see this increase in violence now and how we can reduce gun violence. And notwithstanding the huge you know, gap between, you know, Sweden and South Kivu and Eastern Congo. Um, are there any sort of themes that you've seen come out already uh, in the research you're doing, thinking back to, you know, some perhaps themes or similarities to what you saw uh, among the FDLR? Uh, that's a very interesting question. I think that, so what I do in this research is, that I, I also do um, interviews with, uh, with yeah, gang members and, and uh, people in, involved in, in shootings as, as perpetrators, as victims. Uh, so, so that is quite similar. And what I can see is that a lot of... Um, that their understandings of violence is actually quite similar. So most of them would also say that, um, you know, the, that, that the violence they have committed um, or, or in the way that they talk about um, uh, fear, for example, the ways they are talking about um, traumas, the ways that they are framing uh, why they are um, doing this type of violence. 
Um, so yeah, there are definitely similarities, mm, but yeah. also it's very difficult to to uh, to compare the two cases because they are so um, different. Yes, yeah, definitely, yeah. Um, so just uh, I suppose one more question before we, we wrap up here, just to go back. Um, and I know you know your your work was definitely you know concentrated on this the one camp, um, and it's you know been a, a a bit of time since you were last in the field. But I wondered if since writing the book, you've had any reflections on what you think the future holds for the FDLR in particular. Um, the future of the FDLR, I it's quite hard to predict. But I do believe that they are getting weaker and that their leadership is actually not so strong anymore. Um, but at the same time, when I did the fieldwork in the camp, there seemed to be a very strong, uh, you know, this strong perception and ideology shared by everyone in the camp that they will stay in the forest and that they will fight until justice is perceived. Um, but then at the same time, they seem to be tired of fighting. And most of the younger ones also told me that, you know, they want to live a normal life. Um, so I hope that there is, that there is a way to, to handle this, uh, you know, to handle, to deal with this dilemma and to also find a way how to, to help children and women um, leave the group. And I guess that would also weaken the group even more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I mean, again, in the book, you definitely get a sense that, at least in in this camp, that the power structure is sustained by involvement, you know, sort of across generations and through you know men, women, and children being part of this one unit, and it sort of gives that sense of solidarity that you know at, at times seems exploited, and um, you know, part of what supports that hierarchy mm-hmm. um, within the camp. Mm-hmm. great well again thanks very much for your time and you know i i very much enjoyed reading the book um and it's one that i've been recommending to my students um who are interested in the region oh um, thank you <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, I one last question for you that you know typically gets asked here on the the new books network um is you know what reading or maybe even watching uh, any film uh, you might recommend to listeners or readers that have an interest in the kind of work that you're doing? Hmm. Um, yeah, there are many uh, great readings, I think, <laughs> about the dynamics of conflicts in the Great Lakes region and also many fantastic books and research about the genocide in Rwanda, violence in the Congo and so on. Uh, but in terms of understanding... Um, violence, I would actually recommend uh, the books by uh, Primo Levi and his uh, on the concentration camps in Poland. I think they are extremely well-described descriptions about how people find ways to survive, even in the most difficult situations. Um, and I think they are... Um, I think you could definitely learn... Um, about violence from reading those books. Mm. Um, so that would be my one uh, recommendation. But mm. but it's difficult. There are so many great readings. Yeah, so definitely. Yeah. Well, and I think, you know, his, uh, 
I just to, to comment on that briefly that you know the, his books on that topic of survival I think are really pertinent going back to kind of where we started in the beginning and thinking about perpetrators and perpetration mm. and you know the journey that that sort of discourse has been on for us to kind of pull it back and to think about survival and violence and agency as in the way that you you know, address it in the book really kind of gets us down to the kind of the everyday level and, and dynamics so yeah. great recommendation mm, yeah <laughs> excellent well thanks again for your time uh this has been the new books and genocide studies we've been talking to anna headland on her book uh hutu rebels in exile warriors uh published by the uh University of Pennsylvania Press. So thanks very much, Anna. Yeah, thank you um, so much. All right, appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks.